0: My guest on today's show is Andy Redleaf, the founding partner of White Box Advisors, a $5.5 billion multi-strategy hedge fund launched in 1999 with offices in the metropolitan hubs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Austin, Texas, and Sydney, Australia, as well as less interesting locations like New York and London. Before founding Whitebox, he spent 20 years trading options for two years at Gruntel & Company alongside Stevie Cohen, 14 on the CBOE, and five as a founding partner at Deep Haven Capital Management. Andy has an irrepressibly creative mind and alongside his partners writes one of my favorite manager letters. Our conversation covers his nuanced view of the evolution of trading markets and financial instruments over his 40-year career, including arbitrage trading in the 1970s and 80s, unintended consequences of the deregulation of trading commissions, segmentation of market participants, importance of liability management, growth of orphaned securities, and the pending shift from decentralized to centralized market systems over the coming years please enjoy my conversation with Andy Andy thanks so much for joining me
1: my pleasure to be here
0: why don't we start with your background and and you could take it from wherever you want maybe to the founding of white box and then white box to today
1: I think my career really does parallel a lot of the evolution in the financial markets over you know the 40 some odd years that've I've been involved. Uh, My father was a physician but interested in trading and investing and so forth. And pre the CBOE, which CBOE was 1973, so probably 71, 72, he had a broker who got him interested in over-the-counter options. And then late 73, listed options. My father was interested in that, and he had a broker who had him Selling calls on stocks he owned and, and selling puts on things he wouldn 't mind owning, I started trading as a fifteen or sixteen year old kid in high school in point of fact you know, i didn 't think of it as a career per se and I you know in in college, uh, I ended up majoring in math, and I was going to be. A mathematician, you know, I was I was interested in sort of the the math of of finance and so forth. But at the time, the buy side really didn't exist, and you know, my early efforts at, at getting a, a job, primarily summers on on Wall Street, which was still Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually Wall Street. It was actually Wall Street, and not Uh, a metaphor or a cliche or something were completely unsuccessful (laughs) and was only it was kind of a fluke that I stumbled on a job in 78 at the time I was planning on going to graduate school in the fall of, of 79 you know to get the job I had to commit to staying for a year and a half which I did in the summer of 78. I wrote to defer attending graduate school, and they came back and said, you know, they would give me a little more money. You know, I said I want to turn some money, which they said they would give me a little more support, but uh, I had to show up in the, <laughs> in, in the fall or, or uh, it was gone. So in kind of July, August of 78, I had to make a decision. You know, it's one of those things, had I made... The alternate decision my life would have been a whole lot different (laughs) and I have no idea whether I would have been happier or uh, less happy it's very possible that I might have migrated to Wall Street you know kind of five ten years later though again by then you know since the career path was sort of established I wouldn't have had the opportunities to the same degree my first job was with Grantall Regional New York City brokerage house, and it was trading options for their account. Just in terms of of how different the world was, I mean, one, it was really hard to get a job, even you know, even as someone who'd gotten a an MA in math in three years and had a you know graduated from Yale and and so forth. As I said, you know, I, I the job was a fluke and I stumbled upon it and certainly nobody you know nobody else I knew was remotely sort of similarly employed you know when you told people you were a prop trader (laughs) they didn't know what you were talking
0: about what was the math of options like in the late 70s early 80s and were people using black shoals were you calculating on a piece of paper i mean what was would- <laughs> i actually wrote a you know i'm a
1: little bitter i didn't get a nobel prize i did write a black shoal black option pricing model while i was in college it is kind of the first thing that sort of occurs to you but 60 70 percent of our business was um doing conversions and reversals you know so That's turning a put into a call or a call into a put and and arbitraging it it with the stock and that, you know, so the fundamental equation is uh, long call short put equals long stock. You didn't need to solve any differential equations to to do that. And, uh, you know, that relationship and other simple kind of relationships in in sort of low-risk spreading is is what I did anyway to see how, how things um, should be priced. I left Gruntel after a, a year and a half and uh, joined the CBOE as, a, as an individual market maker. Again, in terms of you know, like sort of the, the time, you know the, the prop desk at Gruntel was um, three people: my boss, uh, Ron Azer, a kid six months older than I am, who you may have heard of Steve Cohn <laughs> and me. Gruntal, at the time, had capital of $8 million. We used a little more than two. And really, the rest of the capital was marginally. You know, they didn't really use. Um, nobody, nobody else traded for the firm. And we were probably a little more than half their profits. What
0: size profits pool is that?
1: I, well, our group made probably 4 or $5 million
0: pre-compensation. Not bad off of a base of two,
1: right? Right, uh, but you know, so Grantel was eight million dollars, and we not everybody had a option prop test at the time. Goldman did, Morgan Stanley did, uh, and they were kind of our our size too. You know, I think, I think at the time, Goldman's capital would have been in the hundreds of millions. You know, I don't think it would have been a billion, but you know, maybe it was. What was happening? An event that doesn't get all that much uh, light in history was um, the deregulation of commissions in May of 75. If I haven't done exhaustive research on what people said and thought about that, but kind of generically the view was it'd be a modest benefit to investors, both individuals and and institutions, and something of a modest decrement to the business. Nobody really asked, you know, what are the implications if you take transaction costs to zero? And nobody really saw that. I don't think that, you know, in fact, transaction costs could and would go to zero because there were technological stuff that was happening and, and had to happen to do that. But commissions, you know, immediately went to six cents from 50 or 60 cents it took a little bit of time for volume to explode but you know at at 5 or 6 cents the wall street firms could not make money you know 5 or 6 cents and 20 million shares of volume a day which is what the new york stock exchange did the firms could not make money on a commission basis, and that was, you know, there were, whatever there were, 100,000 people employed primarily in that commission business. With the benefit of hindsight and retrospectively, it's not sort of a huge shock if you go back to the 70s. So, you know, volume kind of 15 million shares a day on average in New York, and and the other exchanges maybe 5 million. From then till now, or or really pre-crash, round numbers gdp sort of up tenfold, the value of public stocks up 20 25 30 fold trading volume 100 to 200 fold okay after the fact you don't, you don't you don't go well that doesn't make any sense you know it it sort of makes a lot of sense but if you think about you know some of the ramifications among other things you need a circulating medium <laughs> to settle and accomplish all of these transactions. So either, you know, you needed a great increase in the money supply, or in fact, securities had to become money. And that increase in volume demanded that the shadow bank, what's called the shadow banking system, arose. And so so you have 100,000 or 150,000 people employed, you have a, a business model, you know, sales, commission driven business that's disappearing. In fact, the established firms moved from commission business to trading businesses, trading against their customers, really. The prop desks became established. And then subsequently, as volume exploded, as in fact commission business could work, the prop traders moved to the hedge fund industries, and the investment banks became sort of full shadow banks servicing the sort of new businesses that
0: arose. And that, for you, also followed your career right, path. Right, right.
1: I wasn't really, you know, in any way seeing around corners or predicting the future. I was kind of in the, in the middle as stuff was happening. One of the things that's um sort of remarkable is for all of my career I've been able to borrow more money than was prudent. I do think we're in a different era that you know sort of my era actually you know most people would trace the start to the collapse of Bretton Woods, which was you know nineteen seventy one listed currency futures nineteen seventy two The CBOE 1973, uh, deregulation of commissions 1975, stock index futures 1982. But, you know, sort of all of these things, you know, kind of animated by the idea that markets are better than individuals, markets are better than institutions, you know, sort of decentralization, generically speaking is better than centralization. Nixon said we're all Keynesians now I think late late 60s and I guess Keynes had the quote that about everybody really being run by some dead economist and finance and he was still alive but you know Milton Friedman's fingerprints are all over that kind of whole regime And, and he was you know like the patron saint of the Chicago exchanges. You know, I, I think the listing of stock index futures in eighty two was actually somewhat remarkable in that you know they settled, they settled for cash, so they're, you know, in the form of a pure bet. <laughs> and really, you know, like the the thing that they enabled was, you know, for retail people to trade the stock market on a intraday, on a very short-term basis, you know, sort of everything else. You know, there were index funds. You know, an institutional investor could buy the S and P five hundred or, or short it if he he wanted to. You know, from an investment, from an in, you know investor point of view, there was absolutely no use for the product. It enabled pajama boys, you know, people to trade at home, the, the, the market on a, you know, 10-minute, 5-minute, 10-minute hourly basis, which, you know, is something pretty much everybody at the micro level thinks that's a bad idea. You know, they wouldn't recommend that to anybody. But the notion that, you know, sort of the more people trading, the better, you know, kind of a a wisdom of crowds sort of feeling The enabling of the more liquid, the better. Again, you know, you know, pushing transaction costs to zero, very much animated that. You know, it also because it was sort of still hard to trade 500 stocks at once. It kind of focused people's attention on well, you know, how else could you hedge? Could you do index arbitrage? You know, principal component kind of analysis, factor analysis you know, I think was actually, which grew up concomitantly kind of with that product, but certainly um, gave it some force and some momentum, critical to kind of my career. And again, with that consistent, coherent with the the notion of uh, decentralization markets, etc., it was, you know, an era of, of empowered individual, you know, people people would give, you know, it was never easy. That's a misnomer that, you know, like anybody can put up a, a shingle and raise money. You know, it was never like that. It was never easy, but it was possible. I think that's probably true. You know, you think about tech and Silicon Valley and so forth. You know, there there's always been You know, the romantic notion of the guy in his garage or the lone wolf, whatever. It's always been, you know, sort of there. But its place in the cultural zeitgeist does ebb and flow. And people were, in fact, willing, looking to give money to outside of the box.
0: How did you go from where you started, which sounded like a relatively pure arbitrage to evolving into strategies and then what became your first firm?
1: It was really Kessler and Dan Asher's idea, who were friends, acquaintances of mine in in Chicago, and they traded in a somewhat similar way. Late 80s, early 90s, a couple of the stocks that they were the um, designated primary market maker for issued um, what were called perks or decks a perk was a single security covered right. Mathematically, it was long stock, short a call. Like a lot of these things, it came into being because of the regulatory framework. There were lots of sort of institutions that could own a single security that was a covered call, but they couldn't own the stock and write a call. So it was an option product to be marketed to institutional investors, as opposed to, you know, sort of the standard option, which which had always been a very retail-oriented product. And they had the idea that they saw sort of institutional option products, as it were, coming down the pike, and that, you know, we had a skill set that that could be the basis for a more institutional a money management business involving more than just our, our own money. And we started what became Deep Haven. Fairly quickly, convertible convertible bonds dominated the portfolio. But, you know, again, sort of in that vein, a product with some option characteristics that had institutional ownership.
0: As that progressed, at some point in time, you left to start White Box. What was the... Or take me through a little bit of the evolution and the thought process into the launch of White Box.
1: Deep Haven had, had two businesses. There, there was a proprietary option market-making business, and there was the hedge fund business. I ran the hedge fund business. Everybody else was involved in the proprietary market-making business. We were partners in the combined business. The proprietary market-making business was was much better than we had anticipated, and the hedge fund business was kind of the same. When long-term capital blew up, it looked like the hedge fund business would be extremely challenged for an extended period of time. That turned out to, to not be the case. but And meanwhile, the, the proprietary trading business, business looked great. I, in fact, thought that for the intermediate term, the hedge fund business had better sort of long-term prospects than the proprietary trading biz- business did. But in sort of figuring out how we were going to divide what exactly uh, the world looked like and, and what was appropriate appropriated it seemed that it was sort of best if uh, I, I leave.
0: <laughs> so you launch white box and the name itself is sort of, it has an interesting connotations to how people think about investing. So why don't you talk about what the name white box means for you and then how you approach this challenge of, Hey, people are entrusting a pool of capital to you. How do you go about doing what you do?
1: Most people, particularly the in- industry, when you say white box, they understand that it's an antonym to black box. And the thing about a black, the black box, I always thought the black box firms, you're telling people that either our system is so complicated, so detailed, so computationally intense or, or what have you that there's no point in opening it up because it just it just wouldn't make any sense. And I don't think that's often the case or on the contrary, it's so original, so elegant, so simple but profound that to open it up would be to to lose some incredibly valuable proprietary information and you know I don't I don't think that's that's true either. I mean one of the things I do um even more now than sort of then and this has kind of evolved over time, I think it's right to think of financial markets not as a sort of stable mathematical phenomenon, but as a biologic evolving evolutionary phenomenon and and the point isn't to have the right set of equations, or to using one probability distribution or, or another, or you know exactly how many terms you, you put into to something, it's a fi- to find a profitable niche. You know, to find some place in the ecosystem where you can survive, and and I think always, you know, I mean one one of the big things we've always sort of looked at is you know sort of markets that don't talk to each other that well or where you have segmentation where you have where you have securities that don't fit you know something's happened in the world that changes the nature of the security and they have to go from one set of owners to another and we we're going to own them in the tra- in the transition i mean one of the things that i think is very very challenging post crisis was for that to work you need the new set of people you don't want securities that are going to be permanently orphaned you want them to have another set of owners and in fact you know we used to have a wall street salesforce <laughs> research group you know that didn't work explicitly for us you know if we could buy something transitioning at you know sort of 40% below the value of sort of comparable things when the dust had sort of cleared, and then, you know, sell them at starting maybe 20%, 15%, 10, 10 below their public peers and do it in a period of, of months, you know, that was great. You know, it did require that, that the next set of buyers be there and that there be sort of people that, you know, helped, as it were.
0: What's an example of one of those sort of transitioning securities from one group of investors to another?
1: Probably the most classic is and, and has been around for quite a while is an investment grade bond. Strong credit goes becomes a junk, you know something happens and it becomes a junk bond. You know it's always been sort of a a mainstay of white box to deal in in what I call stressed credit. A, a stressed credit is is one that. As opposed to distressed credits, the company might heal and, and it may again be investment grade or almost investment grade, or the company might need to reorganize, and then that's an apt to become equity. It could go either way. So definitionally, I think of distressed bonds as bonds that are going to become they are equity. You know, they're they're the security that's participating a hundred percent in. Uh, the change in enter- in enterprise value of the enterprise as it goes forward strong investment grade bonds don't participate at all at least for quite some time in the changing enterprise value of of a business that's that's all the equity security in the stressed kind of niche both the nominal debt securities and the nominal equity securities are are moving with changes in enterprise value one of the things um, as a ninth grader I was traveling with my father he we went skiing and then he had, was attending a medical convention in San Francisco and, and and I went with him he insisted that while we were there I should go visit Stanford I was in ninth grade I thought this was kind of dumb <laughs> so I actually went to a finance 101 class I remember a couple of things very distinctly. I, you know, I remember that they called their happy hours liquidity preference functions. Sort of made sense, and I, and I remember from class, you know, sort of a half dozen times, at least, the professor sort of said, um, "You can't change the value of an enterprise by changing the color of the stock certificates," and and very very. Broadly speaking, if you think about if you're one invest one one investor one enterprise, and you and you've provided all the capital to the enterprise, makes no difference whether you call <laughs> you own the whole enterprise, and whether you call some of it debt and some of it equity, it's the exact same thing, and it's sort of absurd to say, well, you know, I, I made um, ten uh, percent of its. Uh, Senior debt and twenty percent of it is is sub debt and seventy percent is equity. I wanna change my capital allocation, so I'm gonna rename more of it debt and and less of it equity. You know, you own the assets, you own you own the enterprise and and you're getting the proceeds. So, you know, obviously when you go from one investor, one enterprise to multiple investors and, and multiple Enterprises that sort of picture can break down a little. But, but I think it's still actually a, a somewhat useful model if you think about, you know, sort of large institutional investors. In fact, almost all of them have fairly similar asset class allocations. Um, and you could ask, why? What's the point? Isn't there a lot of deadweight loss? And, and the, the thing I would sort of say is... You know, very, very often finance is governance. So it's, it's when, when you call 10% of it senior debt and the 20% sub-debt and 70% equity, you're sort of saying, all right, you know, I'm giving you a million dollars, but you absolutely cannot lose $100,000 of it and $200,000 of it. If that becomes murky you know, we're going to have a, a discussion but the 700000 you know, that's equity and you have sort of long chain on that. So in lots of instances, you know, finance is about governance and it's about sort of different kind of needs in that sense. And so to some degree, you know, I think looking for regulatory arbitrage, looking for things whose purpose isn't what it might first appear that isn't arithmetic is a good way to think about it.
0: Has that gotten harder and harder over the years as more people are looking for inefficiencies or pricing discrepancies across capital structures?
1: I bought a bank three years ago. I've always sort of thought about it because as a hedge fund, we borrowed at great rates, You know, rates that almost no manufacturing business in the country could touch. Everything overnight, everything secured, everything marked to the market. The very best rates, not the very best terms. On the short end of the curve, commercial banks with FDIC insurance, they have both the best rates and the best terms. What you give up, you know, obviously you're examined and, and there are a lot of restrictions on what you can do on the asset side. But, you know, short term liability, the best the best thing to be is is a bank. On the long end it's probably an insurance company. And I've always thought that you know, Warren Buffett is not a great investor. He's a, he's an above average good investor. He's he's good on the asset side. He's the world record holder. He's the absolute best borrower in the world uh, and had sort of a, a unique model, and that's, that's not to in any way denigrate him because it's both sides, and he's you know good on one side and phenomenal on the other side. It's just not the sides that people think or people talk about. So one of the things that the financial crisis did as a hedge fund, or me, for the first time in, in my career, we actually, you know, we're not looking to borrow more money. But for the first time, if we wanted to, we couldn't. There are all sorts of things that, you know, we sort of prudently think could have a dollar of leverage for a dollar of equity or, you know, a dollar and a half or whatever. And we can't borrow against it. So I think you do always have to be thinking I mean, because, you know, I could always borrow at such a great price and more than I wanted, and everybody called Buffett a a great investor, not a great borrower, I didn't think about, let's think about the other side. One of the things, so the advantage of a bank charter, the value of a bank charter is uh, access to mispriced deposit insurance. And some bankruptcy, insolvency, forbearance. You know, you, know, you, know, you generally, <laughs> if you're insolvent, you won't be shut down immediately. You know, they'll have a memorandum of understanding, a chance to, to bring in capital and, and so forth. It seems to me that post-08, those subsidies are more valuable than ever. It's subtle. And still, on the asset side... You know, you're still extraordinarily restricted, but I, I think that is actually going to move in the other direction because, to me, it's significant. People and regulators and and so forth talk about the originating to distribute as as the problem of the financial crisis. I think that that's completely wrong. It's not the case that incentives were misaligned. I mean, all of Lehman's employees had the bulk of their net worth in, in Lehman stock. And Dick Fold is not a happy guy post-crisis. And, you know, um, and again, in, in sort of the, the underlying theme of markets being better than individuals, etc., the whole regulatory, the regulators loved originate to distribute versus originate to own.
0: And if that wasn't the sort of approximate cause, because I think that is common knowledge that that was a proximate cause, what was the driver?
1: In point of fact, the major investment banks were probably insolvent. The stuff that they owned, it was actually, you know, as we talk about in panic, it was an information crisis. Um, Gary Gordon has, I think, is a, a quite good book, written in beginning of 2008. He talks about information-insensitive securities and the need which... He says money is an information insensitive security. You, you know, you know your ten dollar bill and because of the volume of securities, transactions and so forth, all sorts of securities became circulating medium, became money. And for them to work as money they have to be information insensitive so the crisis was about information insensitive securities becoming information sensitive securities and then all these securities that supported all sorts of transactions at a zero haircut when they began haircutting that was the equivalent of a huge increase in reserve you know if you you translate it to the regular banking system it was the equivalent of a huge increase in reserve requirements, and therefore a huge contraction in the money supply. And then kind of a classic asset liquidation scenario. So the 08 crisis looks a lot like classic bank runs and, and bank crises. And in Gordon's terms, you had bank runs, When people thought there was a recession coming or saw there was a recession coming, they knew in a recession banks would fail. They didn't know which ones. You know, they couldn't tell what was a sound bank and what was a not sound bank, so you had to take your money from all of them. You know, they went from being sort of um, information insensitive to being information sensitive. And the, one of the classic responses, which I didn't know I learned reading Gordon's book, the banks suspended convertibility. You, know, you couldn't get your money. They formed a clearinghouse and issued obligations on the clearinghouse, all of the banks. They actually prohibited individual banks from releasing individual statements so that you actually couldn't, the drawing rights on the clearinghouse traded at sort of less than par, so you couldn't get all your money, but, but they circulated. And it was a claim on sort of the whole banking system, which you, which you knew was maybe not worth 100 cents on the dollar, but collectively, it wasn't going to be worth zero, you know, versus your individual bank might be worth zero.
0: And so in, in your purchasing a bank... It sounds like that is an attempt to solidify kind of that right-hand side of the balance sheet for the funds and having access to hopefully cheap capital on reasonable terms.
1: My model, one of the things that I would uh, morph or incorporate from white box to, to the banks, so, so there's the bank, commercial bank, which um, you know, has, to, has to act like a bank, can't do things that other banks can't do. It can't really be more aggressive or own different stuff than any commercial bank. But so there's the bank, there's the holding company, which is a regulated entity, but quite a bit less so. And then there's, you know, kind of me personally. And I would sort of tell, you know, kind of potential clients or, or whatever that, Uh, And it would be kind of the the business plan, you know, that if something makes business sense between the three entities, we can finance it and we can finance it in one place. And to the extent when you've transitioned to being, you know, kind of classically bankable, which will be the cheapest form of, of financing, we can move you more quickly to that than... If you took a a different course within the banking world, it's, it's somewhat easier to see sort of transition. You know what a qualifying mortgage is. It's written down like a great. We like to do mortgages that aren't qualifying right now, but will be, you know, shortly. So like one of the things if you change jobs, if you change jobs. You're not going to get a qualified mortgage. But if you change jobs within the industry, it's sort of the same. Uh, that ages naturally and, and becomes a qualifying mortgage you know, with just sort of the, the passage of time. One area where I'd really like the bank to focus and see if you're a growing company, a week of profitability. A month of profitability is the same as two years, you know, probably better. If you're not talking about, you know, the hockey stick, that's in everybody's projections, but you're actually growing and with the growth, you're generating operating income, you're not spending it all, you become profitable. Something could happen, you know, a a real outside event, but a week of profitability is the same as a year or two years of profitability that's the sweet spot to be making loans
0: you've been involved in in sort of structured credit from you know call it the beginning if i don't know if it's the beginning but the subprime shorts pre-crisis and all different kinds of evolution uh, of those markets how did you get there and what's happened to the opportunity set over the last decade
1: The original genesis was, um, I heard a New Century presentation, and uh, the thing that uh, was intriguing was all their businesses was, you know, essentially all of their business was cash-out refis, you know, and I thought a cash-out refi is fundamentally different than a new purchase. Even if you're borrowing a hundred percent on a new purchase, you have an incentive to get the the right price, you know, for it to be market, a cash out refi, first of all, all, all the incentives are, are the other way. Typically, it means that uh, particularly a cash out refi at a higher rate it means you're like the worst credit in the world. <laughs> you know, you're not able to pay your bills now. You know, I knew there was some some work in the corporate world, default rates, vis-a-vis different uses of, of proceeds. They're the highest default rates on, on cash out deals, as it were. If a deal is done to make an acquisition or something that ha- it does generically sort of better than deals done to pay off insiders. So it struck me that the, you know that was a fundamental flaw. You know, so all the sort of subprime lenders, you know, I mean they they talk about you know, having a better model, as it were, having, you know, being able to, they can see this, this, whatever, 570 FICO person is really a 660 FICO. You know, they, they all sort of say that, but as a public company, you have to grow, you have to sort of get market share, it's, it's fundamentally inconceivable to you know it's it's a real contradiction to say we actually have tighter we have better sort of lending standards and, you know and in, in a lot of ways tighter lending standards but but we're gonna get market share that's fundamentally at odds so, so, so once you so that was, so that was you, kind yeah. of 2003 2004 oh so it was early uh, yeah, there's so. no doubt in my mind new century is gonna go broke <laughs> so the thing that was important you can be so early that you're just wrong (laughs) and it was certainly possible in new century to be so early that you were wrong so it was really a question you know it was about you know looking for the canaries and trying to avoid the temptation of being too early new century had a convert we had we had a bearish kind of um position but you know i mean we We looked at the securitizations of the people we considered sort of the worst underwriters.
0: And so did you start with a a short of new century, and did that lead into the securities?
1: One area I know, our book's been declining in size pretty consistently. Like one area where we saw opportunities was um, things that are now the top of a capital structure at the bottom, you know, the other stuff has been paid off or, or disappeared. Isn't par certain? You know, something trading in the seventies that maybe, maybe at the end of the day, the principal. You know, you're only gonna. You know, it's only gonna be sixty-five that you collect in principal, but maybe it's eighty-five or a hundred and and sort of something in the seventies that that's a six percent yielder. You know, if, if you know if. So you know, so over seven years, you're kind of you know, know, it doesn't doesn't really matter that much whether you end up with sixty five of principal or seventy five of principal. Your returns going to be okay at the bottom end versus you know the power security. In
0: your conversations with clients and allocators, what's your sense of what you're able to do differently from others? today
1: will always be a, a centerpiece the, the thing about you know seeing the, the whole all of a company's capital structure same place same time and being willing and able to be in the part that we think is is mispriced most attractive and particularly if it's edible. you know i think that that's still core and a viable niche
0: is it harder to find those mispricings today than it used to be? The
1: bigger thing and the thing I think we need to focus on more and maybe develop some additional capabilities. It's not finding the mispricings, it's transitioning. It's it's they're moving to another set of owners and I do really see a sea change in the financial system that that lots of things ha- have driven included reg fd you know which wasn't particularly controversial you know in the sense that you can't have people with infra- with an informational advantage you know the information has to be dispersed and so forth though you know i mean it used to be that incremental information got released incrementally as it were i mean even pre-fd company couldn't tell an investor that we're in talks to be acquired and we think it's going to happen in the next month or two. They wouldn't say something like that, but they could say, "We're, we're running this pilot with Walmart. I think FD did sort of shut companies up, and I think that put a lot of active managers out of business. It wasn't a huge factor in their returns, But, you know, it was an incremental uh, advantage. And and it was part of the story. You you know, they could tell people they knew more about their portfolio companies than... I think that with with them gone, with the dealer desks sort of gone, I see there being more permanently orphaned securities. And, and, you know, I mean, really, the only people to... uh, to be the effect of arbitrageurs or to close differences is, is corporate America, and corporate America is sort of slower, it'll be a little more episodic, it'll be, you know, one-off. If you have two identical companies and they're not paying dividends, one of them trades at 10 times earnings and one of them trades at 20 times earnings, they're growing their earnings at, at 5% a year, if their Ps stay the same. The return in, in owning either of them is the same. It's their it's their five percent, earning growth. That discrepancy can stay there forever. In the past, there were active managers. You know, they would buy the, the 10 PE stock, in preference to the to the 20 PE stock. And and a lot of times, I think the discrepancy was that you know the 10 PE stock, was seen as a less good company, a less good management or. And if that perception went away, the gap could close. I mean, now it's much more, I think it's more systemic. The 20 PE stock is in all the ETFs. The 10 PE stock isn't. You know, obviously, you know, like the 20 PE stock can fall out of that. And that can happen. But it's just not, you know, I wrote in one piece, returns above an index have to, mathematically, the possible sources are uh, uh, leverage, concentration, or turnover the world now, you know, sort of less, less leverage, you know, things we would leverage that we can't, way less turnover, you know, you have to ask, you know, what are the things you're comfortable being concentrated in? We used to have Wall Street sort of helping driving the turnover. I mean, now, you know, we have to figure out how to do it ourselves or how to drive it ourselves or things where it's, it's more built in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As you're organizing your investment efforts, how do you think about what principles guide the types of investment activities you'd like to be involved in?
1: One of the classic Andy pieces is uh, um, coupon clippers uh, versus, um, I think I called them security resellers. I want to be a coupon clipper. If you're owning a stressed credit, you have to be willing to Finance the reorg <laughs> there's a lot of discussion that's gone back and forth you know, whether we want to be a CLO manager the strength of a CLO is you know CLOs have matched funding they have their sort of bankruptcy <laughs> remote as it were they you know they have a good liability side downside you know particularly as a new manager you know very restricted on the Asset side, you have to make it look like every other CLO, and, and probably get some flexibility as you become established. To me, a huge issue. So is, you know, as is as a CLO, you, know, you can't fund. You know, you you have to sell. You get a little bit of flexibility, but generically speaking, if the loan trades below 80, you start. Having issues, and you probably just just have to sell. So in that sense, you're you're in the wrong side. So we have to, kind of, you know, kind of figure out how you structure it that we're not leaking uh, there. I think risk arb may be interesting not at this instant, but over the next ten years, because there you have this specific function of corporate America, (laughs) closing a valuation gap. And the kind of classic players have been sort of hollowed out. (laughs) The huge deals is a profitable niche, even even though, you know, huge, you're actually not sort of adding, I was always suspicious that people did actually know more about this, this, that, or the other kind of deal,
0: and to that point of concentration, do you think that the risk-arb area becomes a place where you need to be sort of more rifle-shot in the particular deals that you want, or do you think the opportunity gets to a point where you can have a broader portfolio? It's, it's
1: plausible to me that you would actually own almost all big deals.
0: Right. So the capital is not there to close the gap. How do you think the financial system evolves from here over the next 10 years?
1: I think the very central idea that, you know, like sort of markets are better than markets individuals better than institutions etc. you know, I do I I think that's dead. And I think the world really wants institutional, wants to go back to sort of institutional capital allocation, government capital allocation, you know. I don't know if it's 200% of the net money or, three, you know, whatever it is, but, but all the money since 08 has gone to passive investment. Active managers sort of across the board have had outflows and passive managers have had um, inflows. And I think that's kind of consistent with the idea that, you know, we want... Quasi government <laughs> allocation of, of capital. To me, you know, around the world, central bank balance sheets, not just being the size that they are, but there is no sort of objection to central banks owning anything, owning, owning any asset value. You know, it's the folk wisdom is that uh, in 87, the Fed lent directly to Kidder Peabody. To meet their margin call, I describe it as folk wisdom. You know, I, d- I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if you can find out if it's true or not. But that was, you know, sort of out there. You know, um, unambiguously. You know, they own they're the maiden lane <laughs> securities on on the Fed's balance sheet. You know, the, a lot of central banks own stocks. Fannie and Freddie, explicitly from this sort of weird kind of private. Entity, you know, sort of making micro decisions to being a pure public entity. Infrastructure is is bipartisan to the to the extent that anything is bipartisan. You know, again, oh wait, you know, you have the the notion of too big to fail, but absolutely moving in the opposite direction. I don't think sort of by accident, you, you know, I don't think. Well, stuff we have to do and that's sort of the undesirable uh, consequence I you know I think sort of a deliberate kind you know kind of a policy not, not you know not just a policy decision but where where the people are you know in the immediate aftermath of, of the crisis you know white box we lowered our fees by about 30 million dollars a year and our financing costs went up by about 30 million dollars a year so you know there was the financial crisis was a direct transfer from the white box partners to the JP Morgan's of the world and I think the world liked that the world you know like uh, you know as opposed to the people that work the individual in the in the garage as it were the independent thinker you know they were happy that 30 million dollars a year was coming from me and my partners and going to JP Morgan. I think it's sort of a long, a very long cycle kind of thing. You know, I did there's a saying about, you know, the stock market predicting twelve of the last five recessions or or, or whatever it is. I, I've predicted three of the last one <laughs> ending of of the the era. You know, like I thought 89 and 90, the collapse of the UAL deal, and then the collapse of Drexel. I thought, you know, (laughs) I thought 87 could be a turning point. And then I thought 89, you know, that might be a really seminal event. And then for sure, the 98, the collapse of of long-term capital. And, and, you know, in particular, long-term capital, you know, told people, you know, we're smart, we're fully invested and aligned with you come along for the ride. And it was true. You know, it was true in a way that it was quintessentially true for them. You know, as opposed to you know, I mean most of the others it wasn't true. And people in the industry recognized that it wasn't true and they were kind of on the the outskirts of of the business in, in one one way or another but was so true for long-term capital that that had to be the end of saying you know uh, i'm a smart guy you know hard, hard working and our
0: incentives are aligned yeah in some sense that was probably just the beginning of it though
1: i think there are a few things you know as opposed to the tech collapse it didn't cause a recession and it didn't touch essentially the whole country in the way that, you know, sort of recessions following bank collapses, you know, and there wasn't anything to to replace it. You know, and all the infrastructure was was there, and the system was actually solvent, you know, so the the liquidity hose
0: worked. All right, let, let me turn to some of these fun closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment? So I was
1: at the Miracle
0: in Minnesota,
1: the Vikings game against the saints and that you know as it was slipping away in the second half you you know you just knew as a vikings fan that they were gonna lose they were gonna lose they were gonna lose and then they and then they had that that final play which was always stuff that happened to us not the stuff that we did it was really fun being in 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 the stadium,
0: what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you, for better or
1: worse? I've always been persistent. This is really a curse, you know. They were always—is that the best you can do? You know, and and the best you can do is in fact an impossible standard because you can always do better. But it wasn't. Didn't matter if it was like the the best in the class or the second best in the class. It was was that the best you can do. I think that's when you look at the markets or look at how we're doing. To, to me, it's it's never been what did Aristea do or what did Citadel do. Did we capture most of the uh, opportunities that we reasonably could have been expected to capture, Not not something off in left field? And what mistakes did we make? And you know, let's try not to make the same mistake twice. Let's make make new mistakes.
0: What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about?
1: I read pretty standard stuff. And I read the you know I read the Wall Street Journal and I, and I read almost no fiction. I read nonfiction and it's usually you know well 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 it's not the populist you know Bill Gates, you know every year has five or ten books that he recommends I read, you know it's that, it, it's that sort of thing I think it's you know an, an inclination to have a freewheeling open-minded kind of view of the world so that whenever you're reading anything <laughs> you know it may well <laughs> apply to something else
0: it's your waning days you are in your later days in your rocking chair what advice would you give yourself today
1: life is moments sanity happiness such as it is it's about appreciating the moments even though they're you know periods in time And one one thing i read somewhere which is you know like absolutely a hundred percent true when you think about your kids somebody said the days take forever
0: but the years fly by andy thanks so much for taking the time thank you Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.